a code red for humanity, curb emissions and dramatically reduce consumption or face a world that is fundamentally different. When Kermit the Frog sang, it's not easy being green. I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, 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 blah. It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. East tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbon Easter Series 3, The Sky's the Limit. I'm Ian Collins and this week we find ourselves up to our necks in green-based fodder. And whilst there might be some people out there, possibly in our own government, who quite like the idea that some of these issues get buried away, this podcast is having none of it. The man charged with shining his trusty spotlight of truth and reality onto these very events is the green entrepreneur and environmentalist Dale Vince. Dale, morning. Yeah, morning Ian. How's Hi. things? All good. You good? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. A little husky today, but uh, I'm and feeling nothing, all right. Nothing wrong with a little husky, as David Cameron once said. Nice. <laughs> 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 what, <laughs> what, what happened to David Cameron after the husky affair? That's the big mm. question, isn't it? It was, uh, yeah. there was a, Whistles and bells were attached to the husky as well. Uh, yeah. And that was the extent of the Conservative Party environmental policy. Well, interestingly, you know, within a few years of being Prime Minister, he was... He was calling all of this stuff that we love green crap, and he actually banned onshore wind and took solar out of the support mechanism, all that kind of stuff. What I say is interesting is that um, there's rumors of the last few days that Boris Johnson is about to publish a new energy strategy, which will include bringing back onshore wind, which would be incredible. And this is uh, really a reaction to the war in Ukraine and prices of fossil fuels and all that kind of stuff. It took a war to get it should, back I was going to say, it shouldn't place. have taken that, should it? I mean, you'd yeah. have the six-year-old could work this out and say, even if you came from the school of thought that, okay, onshore wind isn't the full answer to our problems, but it has to be part of the answer. I mean, even if you went that far, surely everybody would agree with that. I'm speechless. I mean, what kicked it off was a letter from a bunch of backbench Tories, you know, that live out in the sticks and don't like windmills. And they wrote to Cameron and said, you know, people don't like them, they're unpopular, which flew in the face of all of the government's opinion polls they'd been taking for the previous 20 years that showed 70% of people like windmills. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. I've, the aesthetics of it has never been an issue for me. I actually think they're rather complementary to the uh, to, to the landscape. Yeah, indeed. And that's what most people think. But there you go. You know, Cameron did a, a 180, didn't he, from his promises to run the greenest government ever. Then he called it all green crap and shut everything down. And yeah. Good old Boris. Looks like he might bring it back just because of the war in Ukraine, never mind climate crisis yeah. or anything like that. We have um, we have tried to get in touch with that husky for a comment, but uh, we've heard nothing back so far. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing has come back. What about this? Why the hell are the government or aren't the government pushing for a windfall tax on the North Sea? I was reminded of this that Emily uh, Gosden, who's the Times Energy editor, tweeted this: Harbour Energy, the biggest oil and gas producer in the UK North Sea says if high prices persist, it'll be making up to $1.7 billion in spare cash this year, even after paying tax and after paying a $200 million dividend. What the hell's going on? Yeah, it's bonkers, isn't it? And uh, we've already seen BP and Shell's results and the comments they've been making about having more money than they actually know what to do with. Uh, you know, we estimate that the profits made from just the North Sea during this crisis, the excess profits are more than 40 billion pounds across the whole sector. 
just because prices have been inflated madly and the cost of getting out of the ground hasn't shifted. And the government says, uh, well, I mean, Johnson said, well, we can't tax the North Sea because those guys are struggling. And, and you've got to think, you know, this, this man has no idea what struggling means. Where are they? Do, have you been able to pinpoint, Dale, where or how they are coming to this profound conclusion that if you are making 1.7, you've got $1.7 billion spare cash. Uh, how do you bolt the word struggling <laughs> onto that uh, scenario? Well, I imagine having big enough arms to carry it all is the problem, you know, big enough <laughs> wheelbarrow or something like that. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. But the, the other um, confected excuse was that we don't want to put them off investing in the North Sea for more oil and gas. And, then, you know, I'm a bit like, hang on a minute. Actually, we do. <laughs> we don't want them to do that. And you won't put them off anyway. They make plenty of money in normal times. You know sure. I mean? And none of it makes any sense. They're all just excuses for business as usual. I noticed Donald Trump came back this week. You probably didn't hear it. We just happened to winkle it out of a podcast episode that somebody did in the States where he once again talked about the uh, the windmills being graveyards for uh, for, for birds, uh, kill all the birds, and when, they're, when the windmills have finished their use, they just sit there and rot. Huh. I kind of miss him, you know. Do you miss him? Yeah, I do, actually. That's why we have to, every now and again, when we're feeling bored on the radio, we think, well, what, what should we, we, we need to find a Trump clip. Uh, it <laughs> takes about 1.3 seconds to find, because he's still talking to people. He's doing odd podcasts and strange appearances on very minor news networks every now and again. And um, there's always something. He's always got something there. Yeah, he was a source of endless entertainment. It was like having a permanent stand-up comedian, wasn't it, running the place? It was. was. Uh, Here's a question from Cara on Facebook. What happened to last week's episode? You disrupted my Sunday. Oh, my bad. I was ill, um, so I had to bail. I had to isolate. I had a positive test uh, on Thursday. So, uh, yeah, I've been been in isolation for a week. The COVID kid of (laughs) the energy world. Uh, It's given you a deeper voice, though. Um, I I think we're already going to be getting response on that. I can yeah. see you doing Carlsberg voiceover ads. Yes. <laughs> that did work as well. Um, what about this? I, I've spotted this as well. Brexiteers are transforming into net zero skeptics. So Brexiteers, which is interesting, is the argument they always used to throw to the left was that the left always have to have an argument. So, you know, if you get one, it's always a row. It's like, you know, St. George slaying a dragon and then going out looking for another one. Um but actually, this is what's happening here, that the kind of ardent Brexiteers, and I'm thinking more of the kind of Farage group of people, have now decided, well, we think we won that battle, but let's, let's we need another battle now. Let's go for net zero. I actually, I've had a couple of chats with Nigel Farage on air. I was, uh, I was in London um, 10 days ago chatting to him uh, about this kind of stuff. And I think it's, it's bonkers, really, the, the speed with which uh, people on the right, the climate skeptics in the Tory party, have just pivoted immediately to attacking net zero through this energy crisis. And it doesn't make any sense. You know, their arguments are we should frack and bring back fracking, not that it ever actually happened, and that we should drill for more oil and gas in the North Sea. And in fact, even we should dig for coal in Britain. This is Rhys Mogg arguing for that. Mm. And it doesn't actually make any sense, right? Because the Oil and Gas Authority, who know about these things, reckon that if fracking was up and running now, it would run out, the gas would run out by 2030. So 
it's an answer for eight years. It's not even a complete answer. It's just a percentage. And that would, that would presuppose it was up and running now. It would take now. years to get it up and running it's, anyway. So It'll take a decade to get it up and correct. running. Correct. So you'd it, be it, looking yeah. at two decades and the whole thing would be gone. Yeah. So. And it won't power all of our needs anyway, maybe 20, 30%, yeah. something like that. And the North Sea does 50% now, but it didn't save us a single penny in the energy crisis because we paid stupid money for our own gas because of global commodity prices. And then you look at the North Sea, and uh, that, that's going to run out by 2030, according to the Oil and Gas Authority. And the average time in the North Sea from exploration to production of something is 28 years. Hmm. So there's no point getting started now looking for new oil and gas. Yeah, there's yeah. no point at all. And so, you know, none of their arguments make any sense anyway, because it doesn't matter how much fossil fuel we produce in our country, it won't protect us from this energy crisis, this price shock that we're experiencing. We have to do something different for that. And of course, yeah. fossil fuel is just not going to last very long anyway. Then we have to have another answer. Why don't we just skip straight to the real answer, renewable energy? Well, Boris has been uh, around the world, of course, looking for a, a way to get some oil. And, you know, you might think he would talk to, you know, he'd phone you up, Dale, wouldn't he? He'd phone up Dale Vince. So, you know, this guy runs a green energy company. Maybe I should talk to this man. Or he might... Uh, go and see some scientists maybe and say, look, you're from the world of science or maybe some geologists who could shine some light. But he decided instead to go to a human rights abusing murderous dictator to get some uh, oil advice, went over to Saudi Arabia, where they just finished killing 90 people in one weekend. I know. It's bonkers. What's all that about? And he came back with sod all. Yeah, yeah. Just just to compound the the, the curiosity of this. Uh, You know, I think... I mean, we talked about double standards, I think, on the last episode, you know, that we have in the West. I mean, America is a great example here, right? Like just a couple of years ago, they were trying to foment a coup in Venezuela. Last week, Biden goes knocking on the door of Venezuela because guess what? They have the biggest reserves of oil and gas in the world. And he wants to talk to them about bringing it into the market. And then you have Iran, you know, been under sanctions for like ever and threat by America. And they go knocking on that door as well and, and saying, <laughs> actually, the Iranians could replace what's, you know, what's going to be missing from Russia if we boycott Russia. You know, there's no shame uh, in these people. Uh, they'll do deals with anybody, Johnson included. You know, he doesn't care. We're just legging it from Putin to, uh, you know, this uh, Sheikh, what's his name, that chopped up the journalist in uh, in the Turkish embassy. Not personally, obviously, but he might as well have done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, God, what's going on? It's grim, isn't it? But, you know, one thing I want to say is this oil and gas is concentrated in the hands of a few countries and a few people. And uh, it's it's abused. That power is abused. And it it drives geopolitics. Obviously, it drives wars. And, and it, you know, ruins economies. Renewable energy is a democratizing force because every country in the world has access to enough wind and sun to power themselves completely. That's why we need to get there. Why do people say... Because when we talk about this on air, on, on the radio, I'm inundated with people saying, well, there's not enough wind. And then if the wind is too great, then that's no good either. So we can't rely on it because you, if you had two months with very little wind, you'd have no energy. What, what is the real answer to that? You never get two months with very little wind. Uh, you know, obviously the wind does come and go, but it's about having a mixture of renewable energies as well. It's about having wind, it's about having solar. Mm-hmm. Uh, tidal lagoons have a big role to play. Uh, they've not been built yet. Geothermal is starting to happen. That has a role to play. Then we have the smart grid with grid scale storage and the ability to turn load down as well as to turn it up. Yeah. Uh, then we've got green gas. We can make the gas from grass. And we can store that gas. I was about to say, you know, it, it doesn't just all happen live, right? I mean, you store this stuff. So it, yeah. it, it's used if it's, so something conks out over there. You've got a storage elsewhere. 
Yeah, and we can store this gas and we can turn it into electricity if we need that more than we need gas. This is something that happens in our system now. It depends on price. You know, sometimes gas is worth more as gas and sometimes it's worth more as electricity. And so the system, you know, switches from doing one thing or the other with fossil fuel gas. We can do that with green gas as well. We can make hydrogen and store that and use that to make electricity if we need it or put it into the gas grid. We've got lots of things we can do. We have the technology and it's absolutely more economic to do it this way than to carry on trying to live on fossil fuels. This from Neil White, uh, who emailed uh, zerocarbonista at ecotricity.co.uk. I'm really keen to find out more about your electric camper van. Will you show us round it once you've got it? Yeah. What, everybody? <laughs> I was thinking that. Maybe, maybe we'll make a video. Look your appointments. Video, like going for a COVID PCR test. You have to go through the same system. <laughs> and eventually you get to see Dale's van. Yeah, yeah, definitely we'll put it out there. Well, what's the status of said van? Well, the guys making it have uh, found a home for all of the batteries. I think it's like 90 kilowatt hours of batteries, some huge Tesla pack. Uh, so it'll have a range of maybe 200 miles. Uh, they've found places for the batteries, three different places without having to disrupt anything internally. And now I think it's about fitting the motor and the controllers. And uh, and eventually, my favorite part, the um, Overlander makeover, you know, the big wheels, the uh, the olive green paint and the, the snorkel maybe, you know, maybe a roof rack, I don't know, you know, Overlander style. I really like that. Like it. Did you see this headline, Dale? Satellites may hold the key to the methane crisis. Yeah, I did. There's, um, there's a satellite that was launched recently that's starting to pick up methane emissions that have never been seen before. Uh, major methane emissions are defined as 25 tonnes per hour or more, and most of them are coming from the oil and gas sector, as you might imagine. And uh, it's reckoned at the moment that the current technology can only detect 10% of methane emissions that are taking place. But this new tech is going to sweep up the other 90% and uh, gives us the chance to clean up, you know, what's happening in the oil and gas exploration world where these fugitive emissions, I think they're known as, yeah. uh, you know, are kind of unaccounted for, but driving the climate crisis. Question from Jason. Uh, did you see this? A university has built a toilet that turns poop into money. Uh, the bloke behind it reckons we can generate energy literally from any old shite. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but <laughs> but but I know that it's possible. Thames Water were doing it in, in the in the late nineties when we partnered with them. They were turning London poop into uh, electricity. Yeah, yeah. And, and we powered the Millennium Dome with that actually in its uh, in its one year of operation as a visitor center. I think it was, wasn't it? And. Um, my favorite joke at the time was uh, at, at the dome, if you flushed the toilet, the lights got brighter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it did. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a, it just had the roof ripped off the dome, didn't it, in the storms the other day? Mm, yeah, it did, so didn't that, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, a bit of an opportunity to come back with some thin film solar or something you might have. You would have thought so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Got it back on pretty lively. Um, Elena on Twitter says, brilliant interview with Farage. How did you keep your call? So you did... GB News with Farage, right? The, the pint with Farage thing. Yeah, that's right. It might have been where I got COVID, actually. I'm not really sure. Yeah, he's a he's super spreader, is our number. <laughs> like, uh, no he was in Barcelona, so I can't blame it on him. Oh, so you weren't yeah. in the same studio at the time. Yeah, no. What I always find with, with people like Farage is that they, they have great uh, you know, ideas, um, as far as they're concerned, great ideas, and are, are very vocal about them. And then when they meet with somebody who's more of an expert than them, they're generally don't ferociously argue their ideas as mm. in the way that you might think. Mm. They're, in fact, quite reserved. How, how did you find him when you were throwing facts at him? 
Yeah, I like that really, I guess. I mean, that'd be the second time that I've talked to him on air. And in both occasions, I just felt that he was like a reasonable person to talk to. Obviously, the things he said uh, didn't stand up to reason. So I don't mean that. But I mean, you know, he, he listened. He gave me the chance to speak. As you know, as you say, he wasn't reacting angrily. He wasn't, you know, kind of arguing vociferously yeah, yeah. That, that black is not black, as it were. He didn't really engage on the on the. Facts, so, what I was the think. core then of his? He's kind of on a net zero campaign. I mean, I think he's even launched it as a campaign, perhaps, mm. or somebody of that ilk has. When you throw those facts at him, how does he continue to double down and say no, net zero is a crazy idea? He didn't. <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he just, you know, uh, kind of accepted what I'd said, or maybe raised his eyebrows or something. I'm not really sure. I think he launched a campaign that day. Actually, I learned of it on the train on the way to London. I mean, the basic premise is that this net zero stuff is expensive. It's driving up energy prices, and we're just as well off producing more fossil fuels. You know, yeah. um, that's the basic premise of it, which is obviously bonkers. But I think it's underpinned by a, uh, that myth that you mentioned earlier, really, that we can't run ourselves on renewable energy. That you know, the wind doesn't blow every day, mm. and what are we going to do then to keep the lights on and and this kind of stuff? You know which uh, is just not attached to reality. You know, 40% of our electricity already comes from renewable energy. You know, I mean, that's, a, that's an incredibly high percentage. It's definitely a yeah. bigger challenge to get to 100%, but we have the technology. We know what we need to do. The national grid, right, the people that run the grid, yep. they say we can get to 100%, right? When I began in the mid-90s, all of the talk was maybe 20%. Maybe we can get to 20% and keep the lights on and that'll be all right. But national grid now says 100% is possible. Uh, you know, and I, I agree. What I find odd about the renewable argument, why is there a contingent of people who quite like saying they don't want renewables? Who would say, I don't want renewables? I mean, it's such an, it's a completely anti-intellectual position, isn't it? I think it is. I think so it's Surely if, you, if it's there, it's there, it, you would say, well, that's great, isn't it? There's no, there's no argument against renewables. The clue is in the title. Yeah, I, I think the argument is that fake economic and technical argument that it's expensive and not reliable. I don't think anybody argues that other than that, it's not a wonderful thing, you know, because it's never going to run out. Imagine an energy source that will never run out and doesn't create pollution. I mean, it, that sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? We've got over the cost barrier. 10, 20 years ago, it did cost more, and, and that was an issue, but it was worth paying for yeah. in many people's opinion. Today, it's the cheapest form of new energy we can build by nothing in the world. So we're past the cost barrier, and it's far cheaper to use that now than carry on burning fossil fuels. And all we're left with is, is this technical argument that we can't be 100% renewable energy. Well, excuse me, the national grid says we can, and they're the experts. You think so? A uh, couple more questions. Uh, Paul says, in the last pod, you discussed converting fossil cars to electric. What do you reckon about a subsidized low interest loan to make that affordable? Yeah, good luck, though, getting anything, you know, creative or progressive out of our government on the green front. But yeah, why not? Well, they they removed uh, c- concessions and... Um, <laughs> That's right. They went the other way, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they went the other way. So if you buy an electric car, there was a, there was a, a bonus in doing that, and that no longer exists. That's right. And, you know, VAT on coal is 5% if you want to burn that to keep your house warm. If you want solar panels, you can pay 20% VAT, you know. It's uh, all kinds of nonsense in our tax system. And this one from Jeff Razak, who says, Dale, love the podcast. Don't know if you remember me from school all that time ago in Great Yarmouth. Do you remember, Jeff? Ah, I can't say that I do. Oh, I went to school in. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. I mean, if I saw the face, it might help. But um, I went to school in Golston, which is close to Yarmouth. So maybe there's a mistaken identity there, or maybe not. Jeff, but you know, DM me a picture or something. 
Awesome. <laughs> yeah, no. your life story, Jeff, if you don't mind. Just so, no, no. Not quite. <laughs> so we need to fully, yeah, passport photographs, everything. We need to well, that'd lot. be cool. That'd yeah, be cool. Anyways, we, we yeah. can't just be making casual acquaintances in this kind of way, Dale. Yeah, send me um, something. Could Jeff, be anybody, <laughs> could be Farage in disguise. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, thank you to Jeff. Uh, that's it, Dale, for this episode. Have a cracking week, and we'll speak next Friday. Yeah, nice one. Thanks, Ian. Cheers, Dale. Don't forget, of course, you can follow this podcast from your podcast provider. That way you get each new episode automatically. Leave a review there, too. And if you want to get in touch, zerocarbonista at ecotricity.co.uk. Really important bit. Follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince, facebook.com slash dalevince. Zero Carbon East Off.